Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How did a government with such an enormous majority end up facing such an extraordinary rebellion? The only manifesto pledge that he has chosen to break is the one that forces the World Food Programme in South Sudan to choose between feeding hungry children and starving children. MPs, including a number of Tory grandees, are demanding a say in the government's decision to cut the foreign aid budget by £4 billion. Had this issue gone to a vote, it would have been the biggest rebellion that Boris Johnson had suffered since he won his majority. What impact will these cuts have on the reputation of global Britain? And what will it mean for organisations who rely on that money? We expect to lose about $7 million between this year and 2023 which is really, really devastating. I I lose sleep over that. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, an end to British benevolence, the impact of foreign aid cuts. Sorry, there's just a helicopter going overhead. You, you do have the most glamorous location. <laughs> Time's chief political correspondent, Henry Zeffman, is talking to me from his perch, looking down over Westminster. I'm Henry Zeffman. As when we last spoke, I am on the roof <laughs> of Parliament. Um, uh, it's a weird turret just below Big Ben and backing onto the Times. I've got to come and join you up there one day. We'll just do the entire podcast from the roof. Absolutely. If it's lively on the roof of Parliament, then it's been a fortnight of high drama and rebellion below. What the government is doing is unethical, possibly illegal, and certainly breaks our promise. Take me back to uh, a moment in Parliament in the last week or so when we suddenly saw Theresa May popping up again. Describe the scene. Well, by this point, Boris Johnson had got what he wanted. The attempt by MPs, including a very large number of Conservative MPs, his own MPs, to reverse his aid cuts uh, had been thwarted. Nevertheless, Theresa May uh, wanted to make clear the contempt she has for Boris Johnson's decision to cut 
the UK's aid budget. She stood up and lacerated her successor. That was a real parliamentary moment. So this cut from 0.7% will have a devastating impact on the poorest in the world and it will damage the UK. I urge the government to reinstate the 0.7%. It is what it promised. It will show that we act according to our values and it will save lives. What were the, the faces on the benches behind her? I mean, it's not often you get a former prime minister criticising another prime minister, but also of her own party. But look, I mean, the, the faces on the benches behind her were a sort of who's who of Conservative government's past. Like it was people, in short, who had served in governments that had stuck by the 0.7% aid target, which Boris Johnson has now abandoned. It was grandee after grandee following Theresa May and saying, this is the wrong thing for the government, this is the wrong thing for the Conservative Party to be doing. It's not often that we've seen such a big rebellion within the party itself. Has this been really significant in Westminster? Had this issue gone to a vote, it would have been the biggest rebellion that Boris Johnson had suffered since he won his majority. Now, that is a significant moment uh, in the record of a prime minister who fundamentally uh, is pretty unassailable at the moment, politically at least, and certainly within his own party. Take us back to the origins of the 0.7% in aid um, and the Conservative Party's relationship with aid. I suppose this goes back to David Cameron. But in 2005, when David Cameron became leader of the Conservative Party, one of his prescriptions for getting back into government was to become more socially liberal. You'll remember the sort of famous Hugger Hoodie, uh, mm. his husky ride uh, in the snow. But part of it was his passion for the UK doing its bit in the world and the Conservative Party entered the 2010 general election, as did the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrat, uh, with a manifesto promise to spend 0.7% of gross national income on aid every year. So the sort of 0.7% aspiration mm. was set by the UN in 1970. But very, very few countries have ever met it. And in 2015, uh, they do write it into law, becoming the first G7 country to do so. And it did lead to the UK being a huge player globally on aid. So Boris Johnson's retreat from that, it, it has real tangible consequences around the world, of course. But if you just consider it through a narrow political lens, it also says something about what has happened to the Conservative Party, both in Westminster and in its electoral coalition in the period between 2005, when David Cameron became Conservative leader, and 2019, when Boris Johnson became Conservative leader. That is fascinating because, you know, as you say, David Cameron used it to overhaul the image, to make the party, you know, in the words of Theresa May, less like the nasty party. What does it tell us about where the party's heading now? There is certainly a lot of suspicion among the Conservatives who oppose this move that this is a sort of crude piece of politicking. 
The government thinks that it's popular in the red wall seats to stop British aid money going overseas. Indeed, one Treasury Minister told me that 81% of people in the red wall seats do not approve of spending British taxpayers' money overseas. Now, the government would, would say it's temporary, it's just because of uh, COVID ravaging the UK's finances. Going back to when David Cameron introduced this ring-fenced um, sum of, of aid every year. It wasn't universally popular across the party even then. And obviously we were going through a, a time of austerity. We'd had the banking crisis. There were cuts being made all over the place. Has there always been a suspicion uh, of that aid budget within the party? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there, there are some Conservative MPs who have been sceptical and Boris Johnson had been a voice of that suspicion. For too long, frankly, a UK uh, overseas aid has been treated as some giant cash point in the sky uh, that arrives uh, without any reference uh, to UK interests or to the, the values that the UK uh, wishes to express or the, or the priorities, diplomatic, political or commercial, of the government of the UK. And yet at the last election in the manifesto, the 0.7% pledge on aid was was still there. Do we know why that was? If you'd asked him at that point, he would say because it was a good thing, because it, it was an aspect of the UK doing good in the world. You know, he, he has been desperate to stress that Brexit is not a British retreat from the world, that post-Brexit Britain will continue to be a liberal force in the world, a force for good. But in November, with the costs of the pandemic piling up, the government reversed that decision cutting foreign aid from 0.7% of our national income to just 0.5, a loss of £4 billion. Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people, especially when we're seeing the highest peacetime levels of borrowing on record. The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, announced the cuts saying tough choices had to be made, but... And our intention is to return to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allows. Talk me through the response to that announcement in November, because you know we were quite surprised by the strength of feeling uh, amongst some people in the party. On one level, yes, it was surprising late last year that there was a vehement reaction from many Conservatives because Boris Johnson is, you know, the unassailable leader of the Conservative Party. On the other hand, uh, this was him and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, who's been a big player in this decision, unwinding a major part of what the Cameron and May era of cabinet ministers did in government. They believed in it. And so they do just think that this is the wrong thing for the UK to be doing. Perhaps it's not so surprising that they responded angrily and that they remain angry about it. What were the sort of the strongest arguments you were hearing from the rebel group? I think one of the most powerful arguments was Theresa May. People don't listen to the UK because we are the UK. They listen to us because of what we do. They listen to us because of how we put our values into practice. She was Prime Minister and has sat in bilateral meetings with Vladimir Putin, with Donald Trump, with whoever. And with the benefit of that experience, she made the case that the aid cut would damage the UK. Cutting this, this will have an impact on our standing, 
Will we suddenly see countries cutting us off? No. Will we suddenly be kicked out of international tables? No. But the damage it does to our reputation means that it will be far harder for us as a country to argue what for the change that we want internationally. Steve Barclay, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, who had the sort of hospital pass job of responding to this debate, was just making an entirely different set of arguments. Leaving the next generation vulnerable to the degree of fiscal threat that would be entailed with a high debt level is not itself morally sound. And at the same time, loading ourselves with more debt now might well damage our ability to spend on aid later. Then you had arguments made by some of those Red Wall MPs. My position is clear. I was elected to look after the people of Rother Valley first and foremost, and I shall do exactly that. That was Alexander Stafford, Conservative MP for Rother Valley, one of the so-called Red Wall constituencies. He was speaking in a debate on foreign aid cuts, which allowed politicians to express their views, but not to vote on the issue. The debate only came about after rebels tried to force a vote by bringing an amendment about aid to a bill about setting up a science and research agency. The Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, soon put a stop to that when he ruled that foreign aid cuts were out of scope for that particular bill. But he was adamant that this was an issue that demanded a proper parliamentary debate. The House has not, and I repeat, not had an opportunity for a decisive vote on maintaining the UK's commitment to the statutory target of 0.7%. I expect that the government should find a way to have this important matter debated and allow the House to formally to take an effective decision. The government is not going to do so because it fears it might lose. Um, but look, that is the prize of majority government. So I do not envisage um, a, a vote anytime soon unless some legislation comes up which is sort of close, close enough to aid that that... And, an amendment of this sort can be tabled all over again. So it looks like it's off the table for now. In the meantime, if this cut starts to, to be implemented and felt, talk us through the real-life difference it'll make. How will it sort of play out across the world? Some proposals which were leaked to the Times earlier this year said that the upshot of this cut from 0.7% to 0.5% would mean aid spending in Syria being reduced by 67%, aid spending in Libya being cut by 63%, wow. in Somalia by 60%, in South Sudan by 59%. So basically about two-thirds in some of the most dangerous global conflict zones. The, the effects of this will be real. I don't think the government, by the way, is denying that. But for now, economic considerations require them to temporarily move down to 0.5%, a provision which they say that the Act which wrote this target into law anticipated because it, it did provide for them to uh, abandon the 0.7 target temporarily in exceptional circumstances. And these are, I suppose, exceptional circumstances. Whilst the pandemic has hit the UK economy hard, it's also hit many of the countries most in need of aid. We'll hear from one of them in just a moment. But first, a word from the boss. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, 
subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. The UK's decision to cut foreign aid has caused a stir in Westminster, but it's having an even bigger impact in other parts of the world. My name is Andrea Wonar, and I'm the resident representative for UNFPA Mozambique. The UNFPA, or the United Nations Fund for Population, is one of the organisations that will suffer. A bleak prospect for people in Mozambique. The country has an amazingly beautiful long coastline, Um, along the turquoise-Indian ocean and diverse terrain from savannas to mountains to forests to tropical jungle. So it really is uh, very diverse and very rich. But it's also a really young country. It only gained independence in 1975. It was one of the last to do so in Africa. Um, And right now, 66% of the country is younger than 25 years of age. So uh, if you can imagine, every... every, uh, Two out of three people is a young person. And there's a lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of optimism uh, because of that youth. But the downside, more than 60% of the population lives in, in poverty. Almost 50% of the, the population is, is not literate. And the country is also highly disaster prone. A powerful tropical cyclone has made landfall in Mozambique. The storm comes just six weeks after another cyclone devastated the country, killing hundreds and displacing more than 100,000 others. Mozambique is one of Africa's poorest countries, and the last storm wiped out many of the crops in the southern African nation. That was one of the worst weather-related disasters ever to hit the southern hemisphere. And I met and, and supported hundreds of women and girls and families who lost everything women who gave birth in trees while waiting to be rescued, 
women who climbed into relief boats with no clothing and menstrual blood running down their legs. And, and now we have this violence in the northernmost province of Cabo Delgado, which borders on, on Tanzania. Now, the BBC has been hearing gruesome testimony of abductions and beheadings in Mozambique. An Islamist insurgency in the East African nation has driven more than half a million people from their homes in the past year. Al-Shabaab, a homegrown insurgency now linked to the Islamic State group with a taste for abductions and butchery. Its fighters have swept through this region with bewildering speed. A savage, scorched-earth offensive. We have more than 700,000 uh, people, almost a third of the province's population, who are displaced. And the great majority of those are women and children. Many of them are severely traumatized by the, the violence they have experienced there. Well, tell me about your organization and the sort of work you're having to do in, in Mozambique. We are really the ones uh, working with government and others to understand the rapid population growth. So populations growing at 3% a year uh, which is an extremely high rate. Mozambique's youth population could be a huge bonus if it's harnessed properly, or it could be a huge disaster. The only way to address that is through family planning. To continue at 3% a year, no minister of education, no minister of health, uh, nobody will ever be able to provide enough schools or health clinics or services. It's, it's just not reasonable but this is also a culture of very young marriage and childbirth. And of course, all the socioeconomic issues that brings. And so we work to ensure that women and girls are not victims of unwanted pregnancies. Um, and again, this is why family planning and access to, to contraceptives is so crucial. And tell me about how, how difficult it's been to provide that. As you can imagine, during the cyclones, it was extremely challenging to reach people. We yeah. had to take boats to get to them, to wow. rescue them. There were almost no roads to get out to them. The government had to even build roads. Um, wow. So that, that was a major challenge. And then, of course, you can imagine as the seasons change, then you have rains come and the roads are washed out and it's even harder to get to them. Um, but then this and then year you with get a COVID, global pandemic. Yes, thank you. That's what I was wanting to lead to. With COVID-19, um, people were afraid to come to health clinics, and particularly pregnant women. Mm. Clearly, it was going to be very hard to be able to get contraception to people. What impact did that have? No, that had a terrible impact. Not even just contraceptives, but it also involved things like antiretrovirals, people who were on treatment for HIV AIDS, it's still a major issue here in this country. There was not a lot of transport operating. Uh, things slowed down immensely. And with uh, the support of UK and others, we launched mobile clinics to really bring the support out to people. As you know, women continue to get pregnant and babies are still being born even in the middle of a, a pandemic. I can imagine. So we, we don't have the data yet, um, but we are expecting spikes for sure, in, in the numbers of births. There's a lot of maternal mortality and a lot of maternal morbidity. One of the main areas of our sexual and reproductive health programming that not many other people work on is called obstetric fistula. And obstetric fistula occurs uh, when a woman is not able to give uh, birth in a timely manner. And so the baby will, in essence, get stuck and does damage to her internal organs. And as a result, it's often stillborn. 
And the mother is often left with damage that results in her leaking feces and or urine 24 hours a day for the rest of her life. Oh, God. And so it's, it's a horrible, horrible condition. It's, it's humiliating. It's socially uh, alienating. Often women are rejected by their husbands and their families, and they certainly can't support themselves. Surgeries for the repair of fistula patients continued during COVID, uh, and we managed. But otherwise, we really had to reorient our strategies, and uh, we are sure that um, there will be an impact on women's health and births. It sounds incredibly difficult, um, such a challenge. But it must feel like you're making a real impact when you do meet people and, and you see what you can, you know, how you can change their lives. Are, are there people who've left a real impression on you? Yeah, I, I always like to tell the story of Marcia. Um, UNFPA run a program called Rapadiga Biz, and Rapadiga Biz means girls' business. This program is designed to reduce the rates of child marriage and child pregnancy and try mm. to keep girls in school so that they can finish their education and get a good job. When she was 17, Marcia was out of school and she was four months pregnant. Uh, she wow. joined Rapadiga Biz and she told me she had never heard of contraceptives. So she's 17 years old, she's never heard of contraceptives and she's already four months pregnant. So you can imagine the, the level of education and the ignorance around sexual and reproductive health um, and family planning. Um, she told me she was forced into a marriage by her parents and she unfortunately had to have sex with uh, her husband against her will. She felt very alone. She had nobody to turn to. But after she joined the Rapadiga Biz program, she told me that her mentor taught her how to stand up for herself and to make healthy decisions. Things are looking up for Marcia. This is her singing with some of her friends and mentors from the Rapadiga Biz program. So now Marcia's uh, in in her early 20s. She knows how to say no to her husband. She knows how to use family planning. She knows her rights. So it's a fantastic story because now she dreams of working in a bank and being able to support herself and her daughter. And we have so many girls like that. And it, it makes, I suppose it makes these women more self-reliant too. They actually don't need as much aid in the future. Absolutely. And this, this is a, not a very expensive investment, uh, but for huge returns. So if I can just say in this country, the average one in two girls are married before age 18. Uh, for the girls in the program, wow. uh, it's less than 3%. So that's a pretty phenomenal return on investment. The girls kind of work with community leaders and parents to try to sensitize them as to why it's detrimental for the girl and the family. And if only they allow her to stay in school and not be married and to, to use family planning, she'll be able to actually be a much bigger asset to herself and, and for the family at large. Andrea, what would happen if the UNFPA weren't able to operate in Mozambique, if, we, if you weren't able to do all that you do now? What impact would that have? Oh, my. Well, um, if I tell you that UNFPA procures about half of the country's family planning supplies, 
through the donations of, of generous donors, including the UK. Um, so if we were not here in the next four years, three out of four current users would lose access to their contraception. Would that lead to far more unwanted pregnancies? More unwanted pregnancies, that would lead to unqualified abortions, um, and then, of course, maternal mortality. Clearly, the, the, the work that you're doing out there, the work that the UNFPA is doing, is vital. How much of it is reliant on funding from the UK? How much does the UK contribute? So with those expected funding cuts, we expect to lose about $7 million between this year and 2023 which is really, really devastating. I, I lose sleep over that. The only silver lining is that we already received the transfer for the first half of this year, so we can continue to work, but we will be in absolute dire straits. How did you feel when you heard that the cuts were coming? Uh, it was such a shock. It, it just came too, too soon and, and too quickly. Sometimes you know that the cuts are going to come, but other governments, we knew even when we started with them, when the funding would end. But this, this came as such a shock um, that uh, we've spent a lot of time having to regroup, uh, and it really doesn't leave us much time to, to focus on the work itself because we're busy trying to reformulate and reposition and figure out how to respond to this new crisis. The people on the ground who you are helping, you know, people like Marcia, do they know that the cuts are coming? What's the reaction been? They, the Marcias of, of the world are not yet aware, and um, I would prefer them not to be, because I, I really couldn't bear the thought of, of disappointing them. And Andrea, for you, I mean, what is your message to the government in the UK, but also to other potential donors? My message to the UK would be, we're so grateful for, for all of the support that, that was received. Sorry, I get emotional. <laughs> Don't worry. Just a minute. We're so grateful for all of the support that's been received. Um, and it's really unfortunate that it came uh, in this way that didn't enable us to plan. And it's really unfortunate that um, some of the greatest investments that the UK has made could be jeopardized by these cuts. Um, really, development starts with people being able to control their fertility and if they can't do that, it's very, very hard for them to become uh, effective and productive members of society and to receive education and to, to, to move forward. To me, it's just, um, it's just so discouraging that we would um, somehow jeopardize the work that's been done in that, in that way. My, my message to others and to other donors is I hope they will be able to step up. Andrea, you've worked incredibly hard to try to make a difference on the ground. What's your biggest fear if this funding gap isn't filled? Yeah, I worry about the youth in the North because they're already facing so much in terms of the conflict and the, the violence. If they're traumatized 
and they're not able to, to master their own situations, what kind of future are we looking at? When I look at the rest of the country and I say, my gosh, you know, we, we've made so much progress. We can see what's possible. And if it all slides backwards, where do we go then? For projects like Andreas in Mozambique, there is some hope that funding might begin again at some point in the future. The government has said it aims to return aid levels to 0.7% of national income. But when? Here's the chief political correspondent for The Times, Henry Zeffman again. The government is very unclear on when uh, it might return to that target. And has not set a a marker at all. Uh, But crucially, to um, conclusively break with that target the government would have to change the law. And crucially, they would have to have that vote in Parliament, which they avoided on this occasion. If you haven't set a marker for when you would have to start increasing aid again, is it just one of those things that can sort of slip by? You know, it stops being talked about. It's a good question. I think the scale and intensity of the um, rebellion was such that the government is not going to be allowed to get away with that at least in this parliament, i.e. when Theresa May and Andrew Mitchell and Damien Green and Jeremy Hunt are still MPs. But uh, who knows, further down the track, perhaps Boris Johnson will win an even bigger majority at the next election. It's highly likely that some of those greybeards will stand down, retire, move on to other things. The truth is, it is just too soon to say. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent at The Times, and Andrea Wonar, who represents the United Nations Population Fund in Mozambique. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Marilyn Rust. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>